1: Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast, the Founder Podcast.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know. and so much more. So, if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are around the world. and. We've got a really cool guest coming on today, and his name is James Monsees, and he's the founder of PAX. They are a vaporizer. Now, if you don't know what a vaporizer is, and I wasn't that, to be honest, I wasn't that familiar with what a vaporizer is because I don't smoke, but it's like a an electronic uh, cigarette and... uh yeah, look, these guys are absolutely crushing it in the States. Uh, they've got a beautiful physical product and they've sold, you know, at the time of doing uh, the interview with James, ooh, this is over six months ago, they had sold over half a million units and I didn't know of packs because I'm from Australia, but in America, apparently everyone knows about them. You know, everyone wants one they're just like these beautifully like you know when you look at the the website paxvapor.com like when you look at the website you can see this beautifully designed product and what's really cool about this episode is i really challenge james and really go deep on what it takes to build a beautiful consumer-based physical product and uh, it's really really fascinating so there's a lot of takeaways here not just about you know wanting to develop a physical product but also the logistics behind it you know the customer feedback side of things and really what it takes to build a extremely successful consumer-based product so that's it from me guys i'm really pumped about this episode because it's a little different as opposed to us you know interviewing tech entrepreneurs like don't get me wrong pax is based out of the bay area in san fran and you know he did study at stanford and he comes from that silicon valley type world but he is a very interesting founder with he's doing some really cool stuff and i'm sure there's a ton that you can take away from this one all right guys if you are enjoying these episodes please do take the time to leave us a review please do check out the magazine as well it is the fruits of our labor I'd love to hear from you if you are enjoying these episodes. Nathan at FounderMag.com, F-O-U-N-D-R-Mag.com. All right, now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask anyone that comes on is, how did you get your job?
1: How did I get my job?
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Will, I suppose, through will. (laughs) How did I get my job? Well... Adam, uh, my co-founder Adam and I were buddies in grad school and uh, in product design at Stanford. And um, we spent a lot of time working in a studio that we had on campus. And um, part of the pain of being there all the time was relieved by occasionally smoking cigarettes at, behind the studio space. And we would kind of look at each other like we were cavemen and thought, It was quite a curiosity why there weren't products that were targeted more for people like us that want the sort of joys of smoking and, but without the, the detriments that typically come from it. And then I guess I got my job through effectively deciding that Adam and I were just going to give it a go. And, um, I was a fellow at the D school at Stanford at the time and I quit doing that and, um, Adam and I started dedicating all of our time to trying to get this thing started, trying to raise money, trying to put together a sort of plan of action for building a company based on this underlying vaporization technology. And um, eventually people gave us money and I took a very small paycheck and, and then I got a job,
0: I suppose. Awesome. So there's a lot I'd like to unpack there, James. First of all, how long ago was it that you conceptualized the idea for Plume and how did you go about raising funding? Because that's something that a lot of our audience are looking to do and yeah, let's let's start there.
1: So, I mean, the concept for Plume in general was, um, which is now PAX Labs, by the way, but uh, it originally it was Plume, and for most of our existence it has been. But the concept was started, man, I guess in um, around 2005, we started sort of talking about it, that sort of story I just told you about a smoking cigarettes ad back, um, that was back around around that time period. But it, we didn't really commit, we weren't able to commit our time fully to turning this into a business until 2007, so around the beginning of 20, 2007, that's when we started um, looking for funding. I guess we had spent some time before that meeting with VCs around the valley, just to sort of gauge interest and you know basically give us notes on a, you know early business plans for what we were going to try to do. For us, funding was not as straightforward, I guess you could say, as um, as most companies in the valley. One of the wonderful things about starting in Silicon Valley is that there are, you know, there are funding sources in the form of venture capital that that's specifically available for you know, starting such businesses. So there's really there's no better place on earth to start a, a company. And generally in the tech space, there's never been more availability of, of capital to fund good ideas. For us, all of that stuff was really off limits because venture capital in the Valley for almost all venture money, venture funds in the Valley have LP agreements that restrict investments in what could be considered or was more traditionally considered vice, the sort of vice space. Often that even includes things like alcohol um, investments, things like that. The LP base is so broad that um, it's very difficult to create SPVs or side funds to invest. And although what we found was a lot more interest from individuals in participating. So what we wound up doing was finding more money from private individuals, family offices. That's where our capital has traditionally been from in in the company. But really as a result, I mean, most of the work that we had to do just had to be cheap we just didn't have a lot of money, a lot of resources. We did it with very few people. We had to kind of prove the upside opportunity on on next to nothing. We had to pay ourselves very little for a long time, very little or nothing for a very long time. You know, when you do that well, you know, the fun of being involved in a, um, in a company with so much upside opportunity, you know, outweighs the, you know, can outweigh, you know, the personal limitations of just, not having a salary or not having much of a salary. Obviously, we always valued our employees. Although there were in the earliest days, we had very few of them you know, getting paid a fairly reasonable wage. But even those wages were pretty low, and um, you know we were just all kind of in it, in it together to, to try to make it work. And it was a lot of risk, but um, you know a lot of potential reward, and um, that's fun. It's a fun environment to work in for some people.
0: Are you able to give us our audience a little bit more information on PAX Labs, which was Plume, just about the product? About the product? Sure. Yeah. So
1: there's only, there's one product line on the market right now that we're selling. Um, It's called PAX. PAX is a loose leaf um, vaporizer and is... um, pretty unique in the space and that you know, we're really targeting a more kind of refined, upscale consumer group for the product. We thought that there were other products in the market were a bit too gadgety, a bit too cumbersome, a bit not really intuitive in nature, and um, ultimately not, just not really refined. That said, we spend a lot of time on the sort of underlying intellectual property on everything that we do. So there's a lot of sort of performance advantages of that product as well. And over the next couple of years, you'll see product introductions in a lot more categories where that becomes even more clear, where the differentiation is even more clear. The beauty of what we do, emphasizing the, you know, taking a really core focus on vaporization technology is that um, it has a broad set of applications. So PAX is... um, you know, in the tobacco space, and and that's been a really interesting one that, where we saw a lot of really upside potential um, in the short term. There's some more, let's say, complicated business models that were, you know, we're now at a scale that where we can really start addressing some of those opportunities. I think maybe maybe interesting for your for your readership, we you we very much had to stage things sort of in that way, right? This was not, there was no individual problem that we could tackle where there was sort of a a size of funding and addressable opportunity mix that was more readily addressable than than the tobacco market for early introduction. So that's why we started there. And it's one we take really seriously and we see a lot of growth opportunity there with a multitude of products, but it's not the end all of the company. There's a lot
0: more we'll be introducing later. I see. And why why do people call vaporizers an e-cigarette? I'm curious around that. Because I don't smoke. I don't smoke. So I, I've seen people use these vaporizers and they look really cool and, and stuff like that. And I know you guys are killing it. So I'd just like to get a little bit more insight around that. Sure.
1: Well, PAX is definitely not an e-cigarette. PAX is a um, is a different kind of vaporizer in that it uses loose leaf material in okay. the product. So, very very sort of different category. Okay. E-cigarettes, you know, got their name from just being effectively a novelty product. In, um, initially, they were simply electronic cigarettes, um, and they were marketed to be effectively an electronic version of a cigarette, right? Something that would in some ways simulate smoking in sort of an electronic form. I don't love the name, right? I understand sort of where that came from. That's a category that we're not in right now, but we did recently announce that there's a product that we'll be introducing in the e-cigarette space, but we're we're not interested in calling it an e-cigarette. And that goes back to sort of the ethos of the company in that the problem with the e-cigarette market is exactly what you just kind of alluded to is that you know they're making electronic cigarettes what we're much more interested in is introducing new products that sort of leverage the you know the consumer appeal of e-cigarettes but introducing something that's so new and so differentiated that it stands on its own as a product category but has consumer awareness based on the proliferation of e-cigarettes in the marketplace
0: i see and i'm curious with with Plume or like when you first started, how did you get, you know, your first thousand customers? Because I know it must have been a difficult sell. Or was it or was it a difficult sell?
1: Yeah, I mean it was a difficult sell in the look, we're a totally new company into the marketplace, right? And we were extremely cash constrained right there were there's only so much we could do in terms of you know getting the messaging out we couldn't do you know broad-scale advertising we're certainly not doing television advertising really for the most part we weren't even doing print advertising magazines whatever Sarah who's on right was able to negotiate you know great deals with you know certain periodicals that were willing to, you know, print on the cheap for us because they just believed in the sort of ethos and the mindset of the company and that we potentially ultimately be able to spend more money on subsequent advertising. And that came to, came to be, but really for the most part, you know, PR was our strongest asset. It got the word out really early on, but we benefited most from the, you know, leveraging PR to get the word out initially with core subsets of consumers. And then once people had the product, they understood how much better this thing was than anything else that's out there. And the product really kind of sold itself, right? It became just so obviously differentiated and so much better and so much more appealing that word of mouth marketing, you know, was our strongest growth asset for the first, God, first probably two years of growth of um, of packs in particular.
0: Okay, I see. And when did you launch? And where are you guys at now? Can you give our audience an indication of of the growth that you're getting?
1: Yeah, I mean, we recently announced, them, you know, that we had. Surpassed half a million packs is sold, and we, you know, as a result, you know from the I mean from the benefits of scaled manufacturing, we were able to lower the price on the on old packs on Pax one from two hundred and fifty dollars down to two hundred dollars, and that's reflected on our website now. That's probably the the only real metric I can give you um, at the moment for sort of the scale that we're at, but what I can tell you is the growth has been fantastic. The other thing I can tell you is that the drivers for growth have shifted from being wholly organic, right, this, as I sort of alluded before, um, where we're really so dependent on the differentiation of the product to really drive growth, and, and now much more towards you know, targeted marketing and, and sales activities that are much
0: more strategic in nature.
1: But that keeps growth humming along at you know a really significant
0: clip. I see. Now you mentioned that word of mouth was a big one. PR was there any other like I? You, you come from a product design background. Now I've ne- I've never seen seen a PAX. I don't know if you guys sell them in Australia. I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm not a smoker, but I found it really interesting. Tell me about what our audience can learn from your product design skills. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, well, first of all, we know we don't sell in Australia yet, although the you know the fact that that you haven't seen a PAX sort of demonstrates a lot of upside potential that we really need to address. <laughs> um, in the U.S., it would be it's more and more rare for people to not have seen a PAX, at least at some point in their... In their lifetime. So, so there's a lot of growth available. What can people learn from my background as a product designer? Product design in the way that I sort of studied and learned product design is a really diverse pursuit. Obviously, there's core components of that where, you know, you understand CAD modeling, mechanical and electrical engineering, you know, the industrial design You know, things like that, things that are sort of more traditionally associated with creating consumer products um, or the design of consumer products. These days, um, and especially at Stanford, product design is much more is much more broad than that. So at the D school, which is probably the best way to sort of understand this, the people who study product design generally lead teams of lead interdisciplinary teams from all over the university know building not just a product but a business potentially right so my background is much more broadly in not just building consumer products but building companies to um you know support the growth and the introduction of those consumer products and a brand and an ethos and you know a set of core marketing messaging um so that the product can really grow right you need a you need great surroundings for a product. The product to really flourish. In fact, a product is not just a product, right? It is a. It's a brand, and it's what, it's what consumers care about, and it's it's how they resonate with it, and it's how much um, they're willing to mention it and show it to other people, and how voraciously they do so, right? And all of those components are really, um, are really key. At the D school, one of my favorite ways of of talking about this was in the formation of what we call T-shaped people in that everyone on a team should have really like a breadth of knowledge that kind of connects them from one to another, right? So that you're all kind of working together in harmony. But each of those people should have a depth of knowledge as well where they're really experts in sort of one core area. I guess what you could say is my depth of knowledge is... I mean, look, I've I've worn hats of you know being an, a mechanical engineer, of being an electrical engineer, of being um, a product designer, of being an industrial designer, of different things like that. But really, my core depth of knowledge is in product design in general, in sort of structuring products for for consumer appeal, as well as you know a company, a strategic organization to sort of make all of that work. In that way, right? I, I don't, my depth of knowledge is really so broad that it may not even be a depth, but everyone else in our company really does have that depth in terms of you know, something very specific that they bring to the table. And we're very cautious about making sure that everyone is really well connected here, that everyone's really working well as a team, and that everyone is participating pretty much across the board, even if the vast majority of their work is focused on one activity.
0: Okay. And when it comes to, to creating a physical product like you have, do you, do you recommend for, cause there's, you know, many, many people in our audience that would, would look to create a physical product and design it. Do you recommend, you know, sourcing it in China? You know what, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on sourcing production of that product.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, um, and it's one that we struggle with a lot, right? Because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of history to U.S. based manufacturing, and um, you know, less less these days. It's become sort of you know the norm to manufacture overseas, particularly in China, for complicated consumer products or especially technology products. But certainly, we always want to manufacture as close to home as is really possible. I guess what I can say is. The, doing if you're manufacturing a product that's a complicated technology product like ours it's hard to do that at scale in the us even ignoring cost right the supply chain really is so much more efficient these days for those types of products in china in particular and certainly in some other parts of the world but initially it was cost that brought that supply chain to china and now the flirt you know the the bulk of that supply chain you know was built on that early cost reduction and now just exists so much more efficiently there that that's really the only way you're going to be able to get to scale really easily that's not to say it's impossible you know to do a more to do at least some component of manufacturing in the US there are products that we're introducing where we have you know major component of that manufacturing done back, back in the United States again but it really depends on what you're doing. More automated manufacturing is, is much easier to do in the U.S. You know, depending on how much your product can be automated, there are a lot of U.S. manufacturers that have been able to shift over to what's called lights-out manufacturing, where the automation is so good that there's actually no one supervising the manufacturing, the, the manufacturing at any given point. It's just all being done by machines. And then the people that are involved are just overseeing the quality control and production of those components. And, you know, we get real expertise out of that, but affordable expertise that's scalable in the U.S. And then there's different countries, different, uh, you know, we source components, you know, from all over the world, probably, I don't know, probably at least 20 plus countries, you know, at this point. And um, in a way, right, as a result, you can think of manufacturing being, you know, much more global than it is centralized in one area. Even if, you know, the actual manufacturing, just putting together these pieces, you know, occurs in, for the most part, for us, China.
0: I'd just like to unpack that a little more. So, do you, do you recommend, if if you are designing a physical product, that you should go to China and and try and you know, source a manufacturer there, or or you know, when you guys first started, how big of a run did you do for your first run?
1: Well, look, I mean, we had we had the benefit right of um, having manufactured products before consumer products in particular, right? I've done that at least on a consulting basis for a you know, number of companies, um, so we had we had some background in it. I think the most important place to start is. Getting some specific expertise in manufacturing and supply chain for your particular type of product, right? You you just have to have some knowledge base in what margins are really appropriate, what quality control standards are absolutely necessary, and then ultimately, where do you need to do that, right? It might not be China for anyone in particular. I do not recommend anyone who they want to make a consumer product to just run over to China and start poking around. Uh, that's not easy. Um, um, get some expertise first, find someone who's, you know, really done it before. Look, I mean, the typical manufacturing processes are, you know, for us, for the, this level of complication is, you know, a number of different product runs, right? We generally do, you know, four or five test manufacturing runs at increasing scale before we actually start producing the product for the mass market. So our earliest product runs were, you know, tens at a time. And then we scale up to, you know, a few hundred generally before we can do enough testing to say that um, this is statistically significant enough data that, um, you know, that all problems, all bugs have been removed enough to, to be ready to launch the product for mass market. And to uh, you know, start manufacturing in the thousands, or tens, or hundreds of thousands, as the case may be. Now,
0: when you first started, like, did you go through like the phase of focus groups, and how much testing did you go through to make sure you got the product right, to create something that people really, really wanted that they would speak about? Because that's not easy.
1: No, it's not easy um, for us, right? We were. We had the benefit of being target consumers, right, um, for the actual product, and having spent a lot of time, you know, engineering and designing and developing other consumer products. So we had a pretty good sense of what you know, quality and desire in the marketplace looked like, especially after we spent just a very, very long time scouring the market, speaking to distributors, speaking to manufacturers, speaking to retailers, speaking to consumers, and just understanding what it is that people are really looking for and where the need case really exists. We prioritize that always, right? Like that level of consumer insight, we always prioritize over things like focus groups. I've had times in my career where I've run focus groups. And to be honest, I don't have a lot of faith in focus groups being the be all end all answer that a lot of companies really utilize them for in telling them, you know, how well is this thing going to sell how well is it going to resonate with consumers? Because the reality is, depending on the structure of the focus group, you can get out pretty much any answer you want. If you do it well, if you know how to perform need finding, where you're actually shadowing customers, watching exactly how they use the products, regardless of what they say, but if you can see what they do, right, and you can see where they're frustrated, that's where you get the real insight and where you know, just in your gut, that this is something that people are going to resonate with. Now, that's tough right, for people to do, because when you're going out and raising money, you're not going to have the result of a focus group to point to. You're going to say, here are my key consumer insights, and this is what I believe is going to really you know, change the market. We had the benefit of having some really dedicated investors early on that wanted to invest in us and believed that you know our insights were true and we were able to convince them of that. But in a lot of cases, if you're going out and finding, you know, venture financing or whatever, the proof points are gonna to have to be much more clear to you know solicit investment at you know at a reasonable valuation. So sometimes you're gonna to have to do a little bit of each, but if you wholly focus, you were product development based on focus group testing, I think you're setting yourself up for likely failure.
0: So when you guys launched let me tell me about some some roadblocks you've had or, or any any big I, don't, I didn't like to call them failures but any learning lessons that that our audience can learn from from you guys and, and launching and, and achieving scale and, and, and doing the stuff you're doing now.
1: You know, if there's one thing that I think is probably the
0: most valuable insight
1: that we learned from just getting up and started, it's persistence. And persistence is not best achieved just by, you know, finding out that, uh, you know, far along the line that you need to, you know, that your choice is either to stick with it or abandon it. And, you know, you're in a set of pretty difficult, you know, difficult situations, right? It starts with, you know, the insight going developing the product you know developing a company in the first place that this is something that i really believe in this is something that i really want to dedicate a meaningful portion of my life to and this is something that i believe in my heart of hearts that can achieve real success at scale as qualified by whoever it is that you know wants to do it and you know you really have to commit to it very much early on because you don't want to find yourself in a situation later on where you've, you know, you've taken on capital, you're committed to investors, and that becomes your rationale for why you're committing your time to it. The success and commitment comes from the inside out, right? Not from some external party. In terms of achieving scale, it's really about roadmap. You know, it's, I may want to get to X place, right, at some point in the future, but I'm going to need to run a company in the meantime. I'm going to need to show some level of investor success along the way. And each of these sort of stages of the company needs to kind of fit together in a way that can really be addressable. You may need to do focus groups as useless as, as they may be. And early <laughs> on in the life of your company, that may be a major focus of what you need to do to access capital And the results of those focus groups, to some degree, may may generate insights that you need to validate through external means. And you may be introducing a product that's a bit different from what you really want to get to eventually. But you may need to go, you may need to do that for a while to make yourself a really investable entity. And when you achieve those goals, you've already mapped out, hopefully, how the success of those goals leads you into steering the company towards the thing that you really wanted to be able to have it be um eventually obviously you don't want to sell yourself short and just be you know doing something that you're not interested in long term so the belief really becomes can I get from point A to point B as long as it continues you know along that trajectory
0: awesome Yeah, know that's a really good one persistence is so key and um... We have to work towards wrapping up, but I have a question for you that I'm dying to ask because I know you're from the Bay Area. You know, you studied at Stanford. Did you use, you know, lean startup methodology? Did you pivot? Did you go through any of that phase of of looking at launching and, and, and using that methodology for, for manufacturing?
1: For manufacturing? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we spent... Um We've had a lot of supplier and manufacturer shift, but at the contract manufacturer level, we've really only done that once in our lifetime. But we moved from doing initially a butane powered product over to um, an electronic product, and that required you know a shift in our yeah a major pivot in our contract manufacturing resource as well as our entire supply chain, but you know, the value is always on the consumer side. It's always consumer first for us. So if that shift is required to sort of meet consumer needs, you always need to be ready to pivot anything in the company to sort of meet and address those consumer needs. Um, So we've done that a lot and a lot, a lot in the company. And it comes back to, you know, persistence and confidence in making those decisions, right? The easiest way to achieve confidence is knowing is from, honestly, individualized interactions with consumers, right? If you show something to a consumer, someone who's ultimately going to buy or um, subscribe to your product, your brand, your ethos, and they really, really resonate with it, it is undoubtedly worth shifting anything you need to, moving mountains to make that happen. And we've certainly done that over and over again in the company.
0: One thing that I find is... Is we talk about persistence, but then you find that a lot of people they're using the lean startup methodology and they're and they're constantly pivoting. You know, how do you know when to pivot, and how do you know when to be persistent on a certain direction or product roadmap would have you? I'm just really curious around that because it, it's it's hard to know, right? How do you know? Yeah, well,
1: look, I mean, as I said, I mean, for me, and I, I believe this from having done it a number of times, right, that belief, you know, your core belief is it's internal, right? It's, um that's why founder-led companies, you know, have generally been, you know, so valued in the Bay Area in particular. It's, you know, the, that core feeling just in your gut, right, that this is what it takes to really achieve success in this specific area, is only achieved through persistence, right? It's not through, you know, hiring someone to come in externally. It has to be sort of part of the ethos of the company. But it all comes down to the consumer, right? Whoever is buying your product, if it's B2B, then your consumer is, you know, that business. And you want to meet people in a bunch of these businesses and you want to, you know, understand what they're looking for, what their problems are right? And they're not going to be able to just tell you these things. You're going to need to shadow them. You're going to need to find out what really makes them tick. What does their life look like on a sort of day-to-day basis, right? What decisions are they making? What do they struggle with? What would make their life a lot easier in a product that you can introduce? Now, the stuff that we were talking about in terms of um, focus groups is an example, right, of proof points in those core beliefs can also be you know a pretty valuable error check in your methodology. You want to be able to trust your gut. The part of trusting your gut is getting multiple perspectives, and sometimes it's sometimes generating that confidence is not just from relying just on your gut. That's a very lonely feeling. But actually having having outside forces right, tell you, "I need proof points on this. I want to see right the results of a survey or a focus group or whatever well if you run that in such a way that you're testing your internal assumptions and you're able to get out a result that proves it and you feel like you know i hey i didn't have to fudge the numbers or you know or the strategy too much to actually do it well then you know you've achieved a level of confidence that is impossible to get just on your own the ultimate confidence that you can ever get that your gut or your knowledge of consumer needs is really on track is only ever achieved through actually selling products, right? It is the holistic marketplace dynamics and consumer dynamics of selling that product where you really get knowledge. So sometimes the best way to do it is on a really prototype scale. We sold a product early on where we were just selling a few hundred of these products, but we had, you know, some component of that consumer base be so in love with that product that, you know, we knew we really had something there, but it wasn't scalable, right? Because of the Butane thing and because of other, you know, consumer education, you know, there's a lot of reasons that you may need to shift components
0: of the business to really make it work. Awesome. Yeah, no, thank you. You unpacked that really nicely then. Two more questions before I let you go. One, with your, you know, level of knowledge of product design how did you know that you guys were ready to ship your first your first version how did you know
1: you ever heard the old adage when in doubt ship it um (laughs) there's a a variation on that one which is fuck it ship it (laughs) um i prefer the latter (laughs) but look i mean you know often early early on in in the life cycle of a company, you're looking at volumes of product where, look, you've just butted your your head against the wall long enough that you know that to achieve a certain level of confidence, you just have to get it out into the marketplace and see how it does. And the scale of that product, worst case, is so small that there's just not necessarily a lot of risk in it, and you need to find really lean manufacturing techniques Really good deals, really good partners, right? To just make it happen on a small scale, even if that means it's people in the office just slamming these things together, right? Yeah, that's that's how we knew, right? It was just we had something that we thought could be really compelling to a core group of consumers and we wanted to test it. And we did. And, you know, one one time we did that and we learned a lot about how the company had to shift. And one time we did that and Holy shit! We're selling a ton of these things, and it just keeps growing at an incredible rate. And um, either can happen, and um, you learn a lot from it, regardless.
0: Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. You you're really really good. Uh, there's a lot of core insights around product design, launch, shipping. You really, it was it was fantastic. Great, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview.